Salutations. My name is Justin Lore. And I'm Liam O'Donnell. You were listening to episode 48 <laughs> of Horror Business. You don't like my drive time morning voice? No, that that that, that was the David Cross <laughs> morning DJ like the doctor and then this guy the animal. Yeah, here I am with the It's the bear man and Keith. For all you Lehigh Valley people. Oh, is that a thing? Oh yeah, they were like the primetime morning DJs on WZZO. Hot 95.1 with the Bear Man and Keith. It's hard for me to believe that you had things up here that were not Philadelphia things. And whenever you point that out, it, it makes me sad in my heart. Makes me a little sad, too. <laughs> I can't tell you how many, like, how many mixtapes I have from when I was a kid where it would be like Bush's Machine Head with like tape it off the radio so it would be like sure and now we got the new hit single from bush machine head bear minute they'd be talking over the first 30 fucking seconds of the song sometimes i forget that our ages are different yes i have similar encounters but it was when i was trying to tape uh new jack hustler off the radio interesting <laughs> interesting Yo, I, I, it took us 10 tries to get a full take on, because you'd have the radio on, and we're doing stuff, yeah. being kids, and all of a sudden it's like, I think they're going to play New Jack Hustler, and you run in to hit the, and we were always late on it. Damn. New Jack, New Jack, New Jack Hustler. In non-New Jack Hustler related news, today's, <laughs> tonight, today's episode, we're going to be talking about two, originally we were, we were going to be talking about curtains yeah. and spookies. But it turns out... It's hard to find a copy of Spookies. Who knew? Who knew that Spookies isn't everywhere? So we decided um, we decided to look at the silver lining of things, which I never do, yeah. and we decided to turn this into a Canucksploitation episode. Yeah. We're going to be talking about 1979's Death Dream yep. and 1983's Curtains. Yeah. For those of you unfamiliar with the term, Canucksploitation, these are both Canadian films. Um, and it's, it's important to point out, I mean... If you go to the, there's a website called Canucksploitation. Yes. Where they cover all these Canadian movies. And if you go to that site, you can read the primer. But basically, there's, have, obviously, I mean, every place has its own cinema. And so Canada's always had its own kind of movies. But there was, on top of what was already going on in Canada, a brief uptick in movies because of tax shelters, basically. Yeah, that's how Cronenberg got a start. Yeah. And so the, <clears throat> one of the reasons that you had a lot of, uh, productions that were maybe had started in America and would go to Canada or sort of an up in Canadian productions was because of things the government was doing to encourage arts and things like that. Yes. So there was a period where there was a jump in Canadian movies and then into the eighties, a lot of those movies tended to be horror movies. So we're, you know, death dreams actually a seventies film, but uh, by the time curtains comes out, there's a whole almost explosion of genre film out of Canada. It's actually the same phenomenon that has allowed Uwe Boll to yeah. continue making movies. <laughs> Only true. over in Germany, there's a tax shelter over there. So um, so before we go any further, 
Um, we would like to thank our Patreon subscribers. Thank you so very much if you've donated anything to our Patreon. Yeah, anything at all. Um, any amount helps. Any amount is greatly appreciated. Uh, our gratitude knows no boundaries. It knows no limit. And 100%, we have been working on getting some Patreon exclusive content up there. I actually have a bunch of stuff which just uploaded to the site that I'm going to try to schedule out for y'all. Um, and there are interviews that um, Nick Spachek has done with various uh, interesting people. Uh, and he was nice enough to hook us up with that audio to make available to you on Patreon. I just have to figure out how that shit works, which Excellent. I haven't quite figured out yet. Yes. Uh, for information on how to, if you would like to subscribe to our Patreon, you can go to www.cinepunks.com. And there's information all over the website about where you can go to if you want to sign up for Patreon. And like I said, any amount helps. We will do this for free. We do this because we love cinema, but there are costs to doing it, and any amount um, helps. So... Yeah, if you want more information, www.cinepunks.com, and it'll be there. You can click on there. This episode is also brought to you by the people, by the people at Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. That's right, Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations, the premier screen printing company in the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania. Now, you're telling yourself, what do I need screen printed? And I tell you, what don't you need? What don't you exactly look around your house right now? If you're looking for a T-shirt for your, I always think I need to make a list of things I can say like weird. If you're looking for a T-shirt for your Kevin Costner Appreciation Society, sure that you have. Maybe your role-playing group. Yes. Maybe you're running for office. Maybe uh, you can go to www.xlvacx.com and you can get more information on this. They will help you print your t-shirt or your beer koozie or your, your, your cod piece or your tall tee or your jersey or your hoodie or anything like that. Anything you need. Pillowcase. Pillowcase. Anything you needed to promote your koozie. Koozie. <laughs> anything you need. Trucker hat. Do they do, you guys do trucker hats? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, if you're in a band, if you need just something to promote whatever it is that you do. Can I just go ahead and say, don't get a trucker hat. Trucker hats are played out. They're fucking whack as shit. Get, get, a da- get one of these dad hats with the pull on the back. Like That's what you want. Let's be honest. They yeah. need Dr. Seuss hats. <laughs> no one needs Dr. Seuss hats! Everyone needs a Dr. Seuss hat. Oh my god. So if you need any of that stuff, you can go to www.xlvacx.com. That's, w- that's www.xlvacx.com. Dot com. The X's are because Chris Reject needed a domain name and he thought he was punk because LVAC was already taken. The X's do not stand for straight edge because if there's one thing I know about Chris, he's not straight edge. Yeah. So, uh... Is that really the only thing you know about Chris? Yes, because he's shifty and everything else is uncertain. <laughs> uh, so, it's Halloween time. It's October 3rd when we're recording this. Um, it's the best time of year. We made it. Uh, when I was driving here, I was listening to King Diamond very, very loudly. Um, I'm sure I pissed off a lot of people in downtown Easton, maybe some of your neighbors. I'm not sure. I've, uh, I've definitely forced at work a number of spoopy things. As you should. Uh, Ink and Dagger a couple times now. Yes. Uh, the Mandy soundtrack. Oh, very good. Which we'll be talking about. Um, uh, a band called Dead Man's Bones. Okay. I don't know if anyone would be into it. It's it's a little it's a little upbeat. Is that but... Ryan Gosling's band? Yeah, you son of a bitch. I fucking love it. Okay. I love it. Uh, the 
the uh, classic Italian horror movie scores album. You know about this? Yeah. Thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've done that a couple things. Thriller, obviously. Yeah. Do you listen to Umberto ever at work? So I've tried to put it on a little bit. I don't know. I mean, honestly, most of the time if I'm putting on something that I like, it's just going to be over lunch anyway. So I tend to go Are for Are they shorter. egg punks there? Are they chain punks? They they are neither. They oh. are they are jangly rockers. Well, I guess Nick Nick might be a bit of a chain punk actually. But, yeah. Uh, but Mitch and Jared, ooh, they like that jangle rock. Are they Twinkle Daddies? Leaning, leaning, leaning. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, they listen to other stuff too. Like they really like uh, the Meat Puppets. Okay. But they really like the Meat Puppets country album. That's stupid. Uh, there's a lot of Spirit of the Beehive happening, and a lot of uh. Um, sort of like some stuff I can kind of jive with a little bit, but just maybe the records I don't love of that's that fine. stuff. That's fine. Um, but yeah, some stuff that's like sometimes it just feels like angular noise is just happening and just weird off. Whereas like I'll put on something that I think like, oh, this will this will go over well. But I mean, here's the thing to keep in mind. There's certain things like, okay, hardcore doesn't go over unless it's like the void record like that. Like that gets a pass, but that's about it. Ink and Dagger, they like Ink and Dagger. The yeah, first yeah, yeah. record only, though. But you know, of course, some of that. But like anything too tough doesn't go over. Um, any hip hop after like the uh, late '90s doesn't go over well unless Chris is out there because he likes some like art rap. But like the other dudes, it's like um, Souls of Mischief is sort of the most contemporary in some ways, or or a couple like party songs, sort of jock jam rap gotcha. songs. But that's it, and then. Almost any for for the most part, except for jazz, any black music. You know, there's jazz and there's hip hop. Then there's all this stuff in between that that we also like R and B, soul, whatever. None of that stuff flies. Like I'll put stuff on, and you know, maybe a couple Marvin Gaye songs to go over. Okay, but like um, anything that's a little more soulful, and any Prince record that isn't Purple Rain tends to not go over very well. So Purple Rain gets a pass because Mitch loves it. But like I put on that. Uh, prince and a piano like yeah a, yeah one song one song and then they were like no fuck this oh well, have they have they not heard have they heard controversy are they not familiar with dirty mind i don't think they're stoked on a piano it seems i think pianos are verboten that's stupid whereas you know whereas nick he likes more uh post-punk gothy industrial stuff yeah yeah so some of the stuff he puts on is just not my thing whatever but he, he'll put it on stuff that i like really really does like. he like beast milk I don't know, actually. You should put beast, beast milk on. All right, I'll try it out. Uh, so you're trying to stay spoopy at work? I would like to... Well, here's the thing. It's it's the third, okay? So I get it. For some people, it's a little early. But no. for me, I'm easing in already. Like, when I'm not at work, I'm I'm playing the spoopy tunes. Yeah, hell yeah. I, if, I got a, if I got a good crap song to put on, I'm going to put it on. Fuck yeah. Um, but you have to walk a line, right? Like, sometimes for me, I want... When it comes to Halloween tunes, there's the goofy fun. Yes. I love that. Then there's the movie soundtracks or movie related like music. Yes. Love that too. Then there's the like uh, scary metal. Okay. Here's the thing. The scary metal and the movie music, I could listen to all the time. So it's like, which of those things feel more Halloween to me and which don't? Whereas the goofy fun stuff, Halloween only. I'm not putting on the fucking Monster Mash Outside of October, that's doesn't. It's fly. dumb. Even I'll even say it. No offense to Ryan Gosling, because I would make out with him in real life. But uh, Dead Man's Bones, that is an October first to October thirty first only record for the Fair most enough. part. Fair enough. Fair enough. Occasionally, I'll put it on at home because um, Suze likes it, but 
if I'm on my own, I'm not putting that on until it's spoopy time. That's just that's just reality. And then there's some things I'll tolerate around spoopy time that I would not tolerate otherwise. Such as? Uh, a few Misfit songs. As, as you know, I'm not a Misfits fan. You are not. But there's a few songs that they come on around October and I go, that's fine. You'll that's, let it ride. Cool. You'll let it ride. Yeah. Um, and then there's some things that I like other times but I never think to listen to that I think to listen to. So like um, the Ramones Pet Cemetery song. Fuck yes. That's a fucking great song. It's but, a great song. But do I remember to put it on anytime that's not October? No. No, you can't. It's not fitting. It doesn't work. It made me sad when I was in Los Angeles last summer and that song came on in June. Yeah. It came yeah, on and I no. got bummed out. But it is what it is. Look, I don't want to be buried in the pet cemetery. No. You don't want to be buried I in the I fucking pet don't want to live this life again. Yeah. So uh, now comes the time when I ask Liam. Oh, God. Here it comes. Liam, have you yeah. done anything horror related recently? Well, um, I don't. I feel like kind of bad because I talked about it a bit with Josh already. But the thing that we did together. Oh, my God. Is that we watched Mandy. Yes. We made a special time to watch Mandy. Mandy, um, hmm. So here's what I'm... Here, <laughs> I, just, yeah. I just gazed off in the middle distance and was just thinking. Here's what I'm going to say. Okay, on the Cinepunks episode, for those of you who have not checked it out yet, me and Josh talked about Mandy. And everything I had to say for the most part was positive. Yes. And I got a, I got a little sassy about it only because there are people discussing Mandy... Who are treating Mandy like it's Miami Connection or The Room or you know what I mean like I, like this is like they're treating it like it's an idiot savant movie and that's because Nick Cage is in it and we you know there are people who actually appreciate Nick Cage as an actor uh-huh. and there are people who trick treat Nick Cage like Wesley Willis yeah they treat him as a curiosity yeah he's a fucking weirdo and that's all it is and that's not real what makes Nick Cage so interesting is that he is a good actor and an oddity it's the combo of the two things that he's a weird dude who makes weird decisions but who can actually act if all he was was a fucking freak show that would not be amusing for as many movies as it is it would get old very quickly Nick Cage makes movies that I would otherwise think were fucking stupid right and makes them into Nick Cage made one of my favorite action films of all time. Which one? The Rock, directed oh, okay. by Michael yeah, Bay. Sure, 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 by sure. all rights, that movie should be dumb as shit. Right. It should be unwatchable. But he sells it. But he fucking sells it. Right. Uh, I mean, even the line, which has one of the greatest lines spoken in cinematic history, in which he asks Tony Todd, have you heard of The Rocket Man? Are you an Elton John fan? Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Tony Todd responds, I don't like soft-ass shit. <laughs> and this says, it's you. You're the Rocket Man. That line is so clunky and by all rights shouldn't work, but in the end it does because Nick C- Nick Cage spends that whole movie being this like weird everyman thrust into a situation he's not prepared to deal with and he, he makes it work. Like I, I, I've made jokes before that Nick Cage is the greatest living actor since Marlon Brando and I'm not entirely serious about that, but I do think he might be the most underrated, underrated living actor. Because people treat him sure. as, people do treat him as like, they see the movies he's made and he's made some bad ones. Like he's made fucking the Ghost Rider films. Um, they just see that as like a joke, but it's like, even when you watch his like quote unquote dumb action movies, they're still great. Right. You know, like Face Off. Like I, I think right. Face Off is a movie that it gets like, uh, okay, Face Off. Like, and I'm going to sound like I'm making a joke right now, but like. When you watch that movie and you see Nicolas Cage playing two different characters, 
he does that really well. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are things about the movie I don't love, uh, one of which is uh, John Travolta. Yeah, but, yeah. But there are lots of things about that movie that still are appealing. You know what I mean? Like, I won't lift it up as like a great action movie, but people who want to write off Face Off completely, I think, are ignoring aspects of it that are really good, one yeah. of which is Nicolas Cage's performance. They're, it's ama- They're amazing. Like, I think we could do a whole Nicolas Cage thing, although I guess it wouldn't really fit Harvest's. But the only point I was trying to make is I was super positive on Cinepunks. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, friend of the show, Adriana Gober. Go on. Found out that I finally saw the movie and okay. told me what she felt. And How did she feel? Uh, she felt that she has seen one too many movies where the female character exists only to die and to send the men on some sort of weird adventure. That's a fair assessment. And except for the the two women in the cult who aren't barely characters. Yeah, yeah. The only other real female character is Mandy, and and, and you kind of get a feeling like she sent me this review. Someone wrote a review on Letterboxd where they were basically like, the interesting movie here is a movie actually about Mandy. Mandy clearly is this woman who's gone through some sort of trauma, who's surviving, and who like has this interesting life. And sure, her boyfriend's actually kind of a boring clod with no interesting characteristics to him. But it'd be cool to see like how her healing is going, whatever. Yes. And then she just gets murdered to make Nick Cage's character interesting. Spoiler alert. Oh, right. Sorry. <laughs> whatever. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> it's like so early in the movie I don't feel that bad yeah yeah but yeah. The, but that I think that's part of the thing is that for I think for a lot of people right now is not the time for a, a yet another film in which it's kind of just about the men now um I will say it is possible the movie knows so what I said to her and this isn't a defense because even if what I'm saying is true it doesn't change the fact that you might not be in the mood for this anymore you yeah, might yeah. be like i'm done with it i don't need that anymore no it's it's why it's why I, I gave up i didn't even bother watching you were never here with joaquin joaquin phoenix oh really just I, uh, this movie treads very closely to nondescript angry white man laying waste to people who have wronged him which is what we've seen so many fucking movies see i would say it by comparison you were never here is like a hillary campa- campaign commercial compared to mandy like you were never here is so much softer and more complex characters and whatever. Whereas Mandy is literally just get this woman out of the way so we can start the action. But my thing I said to Adriana is I'm not convinced the director doesn't know that. Like, so uh, one of the things I said on Cinepunks that I, I think is still true, even if I take into account this criticism of the movie, which is a fair criticism. Yes, absolutely. Is that, the movie is in some way a very high-level satire. The same way that Beyond, uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow is a movie that is very much an 80s sci-fi throwback movie. Mm-hmm. But it's also funny. It's it's sort of poking fun a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And I think there are aspects of Mandy that suggest to me that maybe the director knows in a real weir- weird way this movie is about impotence. That This is a male impotence movie. You've got the nude-ass cultist who... When she laughs at him, he has to murder her just to get his power. He has no other choice. Like, yes, yes. Because he's completely impotent. Or Nick Cage fighting a dude with a chainsaw whose chainsaw is bigger, bigger than, than his. his. Yeah, yeah. So in, so there are hints that maybe the movie knows that the underlying theme is impotence. Um, and so that makes me feel a little bit better. There's also a crazy fan theory going around. So here's the thing. Me and Justin turned off this movie before the post credit scene. There's a post credit scene. There's a post credit scene. 
okay. in which they finally show you Mandy's desk where she does all her art. Okay. And all of her art is all the scenes of the movie. Bloody Nick Cage, the chainsaw fight, all the big scenes in the movie. She's That's what she's been drawing. The okay. So there's a fan theory that the whole movie is actually a fantasy. It's Mandy's fantasy about her man. That that none of it happens. That the final credit scene is just showing you that this is just this you know interesting quiet metal woman fantasizing something like if I died my man would go and like revenge me and it would be sick and violent and crazy. I can fuck with that. It's a big. It's a not big. It's a minor fan theory. The director has no comment officially on the fan theory. So maybe it's real. Maybe it's not. I will say in our current environment where we're about to fucking give a man the most cushy job a legislate a, a, a legal person can have who I mean I don't understand anyone who can watch this motherfucker and not be like oh he did it oh, no yeah. one responds that way who didn't actually do what he's being accused of yeah so like we're about to confirm this fucking shitbag we've already got a shitbag president we've already got multiple people everywhere in positions of power showing you know being shown i mean something we all kind of suspected was true but now it's really true and you always thought well if what we suspect is true that these white men are rapists and abusers yes that then there would be hell to pay only now it's happening and there's no hell to pay for a lot of these people that they just keep on living like nothing went wrong now might not be the best time even if any of this is true that he knows what he's doing or that the it's actually mandy's fantasy or any of that even if all that's true it still might not be the best time to burn a woman in her sleeping bag like i see what you mean you know what i mean like i don't know that i was offended but i'm also not a woman yes Uh, and so i have to live into the fact that like it's easy for me the same way like if i see some fucked up you know representation of latinx people and a white friend's like well i wasn't offended it's like yeah, you get to not be offended. Like, I get to be like, yeah, hit him with your chainsaw cock. Like, I'm a dude. So I have that yeah. a little bit of that bias. It doesn't mean I can't be sensitive and I can't hear that. Um, but I understand the idea that, like, if I say, oh, I didn't see it that way, it's like, yeah, well, I get to not see it that way. So I have mixed feelings now. I still, I'm not going to pretend I'm some totally woke dude. I enjoyed the movie. I'm just, just yeah, yeah, being yeah, yeah, real. Yeah. I enjoyed the movie. Would I enjoy the movie more? In retrospect, if like Nick Cage and Mandy, like if in some way Mandy didn't have to die and Nick Cage and Mandy like walk off into the sunset, would that have been better? Maybe. Will I feel better about the movie if it turns out that it was actually like a Mandy fan, that Mandy had a fantasy as a, as a fan of metal and fantasy yes. and violence? She, this is her fantasy. Yeah, I like that better. I don't know if it completely justifies everything, but I think that's actually a fun thing if that's yeah. true. I, I have no problem with any of that. But uh, but I'm also not going to completely write off the fact that for some people, they're like, you know what? Not fucking now. Now's not the time. I don't yeah. want that shit. It bums me out. And like, I, I completely support that. And, you know, I, I, I wish I could say like, yeah, I was so offended too, you know, whatever. But in reality, it's just kind of like, yeah, I hear what you're saying. But it was a pretty fun movie. I mean, I had a lot of fun watching it. So, you know, maybe that's just me not noticing that sort of thing. I don't know. I liked it. I kind of, I kind of caught you unawares with that, so I feel bad. No, it's fine. But it was literally, I had the conversation with her about it like just yesterday, and I was like, "Oh, yeah, that's a fair point. I hadn't thought of that." I'll just say, I'll co-sign everything that Liam just said, and I'll just say what I liked about this movie aesthetically. 
I made the joke at work that I never need to do I never need to do hallucinogens ever because I feel like watching this oh, movie yeah. was like um especially the scene when um the brother not brother swan the Linus Roach's character like the cult leader mm-hmm. when he's like talking to brother Mandy swan. Uh, that's that's his like co yeah, that's yeah, his like yeah. his like sidekick whatever his name is um when he's like talking to Mandy and it's like they've dosed her up on acid and everything is like, um, like if you combined like an Argento film with another Argento film, that's what the color looked like. Yeah. Like everything is like purple and red S- and S- fucking S- weird. Suspiria and Deep Red are fucking. Yes. That's what this movie and is. And then while fucking Inferno watches in the background, like stroking its pencil thin mustache. And yes, and like one drop of sweat goes off its face. Forget I said that. Uh, no, but there were moments in this movie that, that, that honestly like, um, it's a very slow movie, which I appreciated, and I felt the way the the, the best way I can I, I can sum up is in addition to the soundtrack, it it really lent this movie of like very slow moving, but inevitable doom. Like if you were watching, 100%. if you were watching like a gorgeous church, and off in the distance is a glacier that's moving slowly towards, it, and you know there's nothing you can do, and it's going very slow, and then it just decimates everything. And the performances in this movie are, I mean, there's one scene where Nicolas Cage, after this shit happens, and he's like, um, freaking out. He's having like his Nick Cage moment. It's the moment where you were like, hey, did you know Nic- Nicolas Cage was in this movie? Yeah, the bathroom scene. The bathroom scene where he's like drinking vodka. It 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 it, it feels like there's just something visceral and like animalistic about it that I, I haven't seen in a movie in a really long time. And then there's, but it's not just like the over the top performances that that are nuts. Like, um, I've talked a lot about how I'm a big fan of the actor Richard Brake. Sure. And the scene where we meet his character, the chemist, and like just the way he's talking, the restraint, it's it's almost like, it's almost like the scariest part of True Romance when James Gandolfini is talking to Patricia right. Arquette. Yes. And he's 100%. there's there's this simmering fury like. And Richard Brake is just like talking to Nicolas Cage and he's, it, there's just something that's like so menacing about that and so restrained that it, it really, it, it, it like cuts the fat of the violence in the rest of the movie that, I don't know, it's just, it, it, it just works. Um, and I mean, and, and like everything you said is completely valid and, you know, now I'm going to watch that movie through that lens and, you know, it is unfortunate that we live in an age where we have to look at these, we have to look at, you know, art that we consume through these lenses because of, you know, what's going on around us socially. Um, no, but o- overall, I, I think this is a, I, I thought, I thought this was a, was technically a very good movie and it was, it was a lot, even it was, I, I was going into it expecting to really like it and I liked it even more than I thought it was going to. 100%. That was, that was my experience as well that like I already had a high expectation and I felt like it really delivered it well, and it delivered in ways I wasn't expecting. Like I, I think I wasn't, ex- I was expecting it to be funny, um, but I wasn't expecting it to be smartly funny because I kind of wasn't. It had been a while since I'd seen Beyond the Black Rainbow. Okay, you know what I mean. Um, I wasn't expecting to appreciate the performances so much. I wasn't expecting the details. Like I think it's really telling that Mandy is this metal fan this fantasy metal fan sort of like in her world sort of person right and then this cult leader comes along and he's into like fucking that folk record he plays for her besides the fact that it's 
crazy. It's the weirdest thing. But here's the thing about that, though. I think that plays into the whole idea of like the weird shit, the weird like hippie folk stuff he was playing. That was like weird. That's how heavy metal started. Sure, but I think for her... She was just like, who's this fucking lame guy who thinks he's so yeah, cool? Like for her, like, like her, again, I said this on Cinebox and I say it again. I'm not saying this justifies her death or anything like that. But I think the moment where she laughs at him, it's, oh, it's terrifying. It's so, and it's so powerful. Like his response is believable to me, not just because he's a good actor, but because her laughter could not be more like, you're nothing. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything yeah. you just did is nothing it's it, fucking it has lame no shit. impact on me and the fact that he's like full dong out when he does it like by revealing myself i am now in total control and her response like what she just completely rejects it yeah there's something about that and and again maybe then um that's a problem since he responds in the way he does but for me i thought oh like in a sense he's lost yes like even though he wins by enacting violence on her, for me as a viewer, I'm like, oh, this is the weakest dude who's ever existed. Like, she has seen through his bullshit yes. to the core. And and honestly, I'm surprised that other people still listen to him at this point because, like, he's nothing. He she does. basically, she, she castrated him in front of everyone. Right. She took that power away, literally laughed in his face, and... They 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 still I mean I guess that you know whatever that is exactly what would happen in that fucking situation because men are stupid, right? Um, I mean, and I guess that's the thing is that because to me, Nick Cage is never actually a powerful hero in this movie. No, he fucking bumble every kill, every fight, everything he does. He gets lucky. He's a fucking dingus who gets lucky. He makes a weird. I know a lot of people are like, man, it was so fucking badass. He makes that axe. I'm like, that's the dumbest possible thing he could have an axe that's what you're gonna do he made he made a and it's not even a it's not even a useful axe. it's like a fucking some shit on like the cover of like a mayhem record right exactly anyways the point is is that to me there's a sense of humor about it and i i suspect the sense of humor is on purpose and it's meant to undercut the idea that these are strong men fighting over strong like i think it's it's supposed to not be that. Now, does that necessarily make me feel okay about the violence uh, against Mandy, knowing that for other people that was really hard? It doesn't, but I just have to be honest about my response to it, which was like, this is not a filmmaker who thinks, look at these fucking, yeah, I'm making a very guys. tough masculine with these tough men. I think no man in this movie, other than the one African-American character who is the only real, like that scene He's so much pr- more present and real than mm-hmm. Nick Cage. Nick is just, Nick Cage is like fucking chewing the scenery. He's gone. I mean, he, he's, it's over the top. Bill Duke is definitely very, I mean, he's Bill Duke. He's always like. No, I mean, don't worry, Bill Duke is amazing, yeah, yeah, period. Yeah. But in that scene, I don't think it's unintentional. Like, I think the director knows, like, Bill Duke is a real person. Yes. Interacting with fucking Nick Cage, who is at this point off the off the wall gone just yeah you know whatever and i think that that's telling that like i finished the movie thinking like well bill duke is the only person who came across as like the image of like a like a person who's self-possessed yes and every other man in this movie is either a fucking creature or a different kind of cre- like they're all fucking just they're like characters you get, yeah. like you get these like sycophantic people who are looking up to to linus roach's character you got linus roach who is 
whatever. And then you have Nick Cage, who is just not even a person, really. No, he's just, I mean. He's like an entity. Yeah. Anyways, uh, we liked Mandy. I I, I take into, uh, you know, I, all I'll say, I think the best thing I can do is if you haven't seen it, you should know that critique exists almost as like, like a content warning. Like if you're yes. someone for whom you're like, you know what, I've had enough with the murdering of a, a female character in order to give a man agency, then this movie's not for you. Yeah, don't watch it. And there's nothing wrong with that. If you feel that way, that's, yeah, that's yeah, completely one, 100%. legit. And, and I will say that um, this, maybe the movie would have been better if that wasn't what they did. But, you know, I, do, I enjoyed it. I do want to talk real quick about adding to the, surreal, to, to the surrealness of the movie. Much has been made about the fucking Cheddar Goblin. Right. And I feel, I, I do honestly feel, um, I posted on our Twitter about it, how it's like, this movie is not a vehicle for the Cheddar Goblin. No. And I, I feel I feel that a lot of people who were just focus, focusing on that are doing this movie a great injustice. But I do like the motivation behind the Cheddar Goblin to make that one thing where we've all had this moment in our lives where we, we have felt the bottom of the barrel and we have witnessed something. We've been like, am I dreaming right now? Is this actually happening right now? Or, or am I just so, am I am I having a fucking nightmare? I like the fact that they made this commercial where Nick Cage is seeing this and he has this moment of like, am I even awake right now? Like, am I going to wake up and Mandy's going to be, like, you, and you can tell he's a man questioning, because we've all been there. We've all had the traumatic moment where we're like, oh, fuck, I hope I wake up. I hope I wake up. And the director was like, we're going to make that moment that more surreal by having this terrible 80s cartoon for shitty macaroni and cheese i like in the one interview he just was like just let me believe in the cheddar goblin yeah yeah just let me believe." i like how they said they were like yeah it's a, it's like a leprechaun where you say its name and it has to give up its treasures to you like nobody fucking thought that like no <laughs> no one watching that was like oh no that's definitely reminiscent of the fairy folk of irish and celtic folklore where when you know their name it gives you power over them and they have to give up their treasure nobody thought the that. goblin pukes macaroni and cheese yeah. i actually showed my niece that commercial and she was like why do you watch this stuff <laughs> i love that yeah. uh justin did you have any other horror things you want to talk um because that was it for me i didn't get a chance to do this anything. isn't horror cinema i watched the ghost gown gown the other oh, day the okay. the blind dead movie yeah, um yeah, i yeah. love the tombs of the blind dead I, i'd like to do an episode on them one time uh i went to monster mania on sunday down in hunt valley maryland oh, yes How I, met, that? I met bonnie aarons again she is a delight i met heather Loggenkamp. And Lou Diamond Phillips. All right. Did you tell me about our episode? I actually did. And when I said goodbye, I see you around, buddy boy. So that was my high point of my life. Um, But one thing I did horror related that isn't necessarily movie wise uh, was I reread a book um, by a guy named Robert McCammon, who I don't know if I've ever talked about in the show before, but um, he was a, he's, I don't know if he's still writing, I don't even know if he's still alive, unfortunately, but he was a horror writer back in the late, in the eighties and nineties. And he, he, one of my favorite books of his is a book called Usher's Passing. Um, and it's basically sort of like a Gothic, uh, horror novel that postulates that the ushers in Edgar Allan Poe's Fall of the House of Usher, uh, that there was, those characters had a brother who went on to, um, build a arms company like a gun gunpowder weapons company and it progressed down the ages till they became like the richest family in the world and it's just about the uh the heir to this company is this young man who is anti-war he wants to reject this his family's legacy of like war and he doesn't want any part of the billions and billions of dollars that his father's about to pass on because his father's dying 
and then it just delves in by it's like it starts out and you think it's kind of a gimmick that oh it's about the the ushers in like the Poe short story but by the end of it you completely forget the connection to Edgar Allan Poe because it explores like um sort of a a Halloween three type vibe you know how like you know Celtic folklore and you know there's like witches and all this cool shit in it so I just finished that. I always, you know, I, I, I try to re- reread it every couple of years and um, it's always rewarding. So if you want to check it out, it's Usher's Passing by Robert McCammon. Uh, it's a great book. He's written a few other books that I've also enjoyed, like They Thirst and uh, Swan Song and Boy's Life. So yeah, that's all I've really, that's only this spooky stuff I've done lately. The only thing I'll say on, on top of mine is uh, if you all, it's not a spooky movie, but I, I finished my piece on the ninth configuration and in it I made some strong claims about the exorcist so okay feel free to read that and then yell at me if you want oh also i went to another heart convention uh oh my god not this past week the week before speaking of the exorcist i met fucking linda blair that was Whoa. oh yeah you did tell me that, that was amazing we didn't talk about horror movies because she is a vegan like me and all we talked about was veganism and it was beautiful i appreciate that i'm and glad I, you had that moment with I, her i, I kind of cried like i teared up a little bit and it was just a beautiful thing um but other than that, I haven't really done anything. I mean, it's now October, so it's going to be from here on out until the 31st. till the demon bell strikes midnight on the 31st, I'm going to be full-blown, full-blown spooky. To be fair, you watch a lot of horror anyway. This is not, I mean, you're more invested around this time because it's fun. Think this is a fucking costume. No, this is a way of life. Well, I'm saying this is fun for us to like, because everyone's stoked on it, so you yeah. get to enjoy it. But like, it's not like you're not watching. I'm, I'm, despite this podcast... I am not watching horror all the time. It never ends for me. You just watch horror all the time. I do. I, well, I'm not saying that. Like, it's, you know, I'm not doubting you. You shouldn't. Sorry. <laughs> so we're going to take a quick break. <laughs> and when we get back, we're going to talk about 1979's Death Dream, a.k.a. The Dead of Night. We'll be right back. Right back. The story of one night in a small town that changed the lives of many and ended the lives of some. As night fell, Something evil descended upon the town. Something corrupt. Unspeakable. Behind their drawn curtains they waited as fear walked in the dead of night. Where you headed? Come on, hop aboard. You 
the importance of the first five minutes of Dead of Night, audiences will not be seated after the beginning of the picture. And we are back to talk about 1979's Death Dream, a.k.a. Dead of Night. Released on August 29th, Judgment Day, 1979, written by Alan Ormsby, who also wrote The Cat People, Popcorn, which is a movie that sucks so bad, Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, and Porky's 2, who was directed by Bob Clark, who directed Porky's, Porky's 2, A Christmas Story, Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, Black Christmas, and his Magnus Opum, the timeless classic, Baby Geniuses. <laughs> Starring John Marley, who you might know is the guy who wakes up to find a horse head in his bed in The Godfather, Lynn Carlin, who did a bunch of stuff for TV, and Richard Bacchus, who also did a bunch of stuff for TV. Uh, the plot of this movie is basically it's a variation upon W.W. Jacobs' uh, The Monkey's Paw, which, if you don't know what The Monkey's Paw is, imagine like Pet Cemetery, but with no actual burying. Um, there's an American soldier in Vietnam, gets killed, and his mother, when she's in, they're informed that um, he's dead, his mother basically breaks down and, you know, prays that he comes back, and then the next night, um, he just shows up. And he's like, oh, it was a clerical error. I'm home. And then weird shit starts to happen. Um, they notice that he is like attitude is different. Uh, he's very like withdrawn. He's weird. They suspect he's hiding something. People start turning up dead. And um, it turns out that he's this revenant, a, va- a vampire. I mean, he is in many ways. Uh... You could consider this, if it weren't for George Romero, a zombie movie. Yeah, I mean, he's undead. He he's, is undead. He's he is not rightly alive. No, he is. He he. You know, he he. Besides, he has to kill people to drink their blood. And uh, th- the driving plot of this movie is basically things starts to fall apart. Things start to unravel. People start to put the pieces together that. So he's somehow connected to what's going on. Yeah, exactly. They find like a tr- the trucker who gave him a ride home. 
that he hitchhiked with turns up dead, drained of blood. Uh, he freaks out in front of a bunch of kids and strangles a dog to death. Um, his parents are like, they notice that that things are, that he's off, basically. Right. And um, that's just what the movie is all about, is is is, is how his family is, is really dealing. Because he, the character of Andy, he is sort of like a, I guess, like a human MacGuffin. Sure. You know what I mean? Like the the most of the movie is about how his family is dealing or in his father's case, not dealing with his son being back in their lives. Right. And uh, we've, we talked about the, how this movie is, it, it could be a, uh, it could be like a, a metaphor for PTSD. Um, Cause you know, obviously, like I said, you know, it, it opens up with Andy getting killed in Vietnam. Uh, I feel like this movie is in, in a weird way, it's a weirdest version of a lot of things. Okay. It's the weirdest version of a zombie movie in a lot of ways. Yes. It is um, possibly the only Canadian movie about Vietnam. Yes. Uh, It's certainly a Canadian movie about America. Yes. In a very interesting way that almost, if you are someone who is, um, let's say, ridiculously patriotic, you might watch this movie and go, know what screw you canadia yeah how dare you judge us in typical canadian fashion they're very polite about it but, but this is this is i'll go ahead and say it's a scathing critique about how right veterans were treated upon upon returning home 100 percent. Uh, and it is in fact even if they didn't have the language for it it is an early movie about ptsd about the way soldiers have trouble acclimating you know what i mean it's almost like the movie wanted to be about how hard it is for soldiers to come back into our world and the metaphor of the undead it's not like they hit upon it while they were let's make a movie about a zombie i don't know he's a soldier or something you know yeah yeah, yeah. it's like this idea that he doesn't belong because he's not really alive allows them to get at this emotional reality yeah i mean it uh and i think i think the way the, the response to ptsd during the vietnam era when they're coming back i think it's most manifested in the the um the the the, 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 the character of the father who has zero patience for his son's behavior like yeah none the next day after this and mind you 24 hours before this he thought his son was dead thought his son was right, dead right son his son shows back up the next day and instead of being like maybe we should give her boy some time who knows what he's seen over there just let him readjust he's sitting in a chair because the first thing that they notice the first weird behavior he exhibits that they notice is he just sits in this rocking chair just rocks back and forth all he does in upstairs just rocks back and forth and his father the john marley is just like i can't take the noise it had rocking anymore and he goes up and he starts yelling at his son about how soft he is and his father i think was either like a world war ii vet or like a korean war vet sure and he's like well when i came back i didn't do all this weird soft shit like i didn't i didn't i didn't act like <laughs> commentary by mave <laughs> uh oh, uh let's let's take a quick break okay yeah no problem Hey, it's Bill Mosley, and you're listening to Horror Business. (laughs) So, yeah, essentially, I I think that the the character of the father... um, He kind of represents that attitude that people from Vietnam were getting from other vets. Yes. As if there were... As if no one came back from World War One or World War Two shell shocked, like that didn't happen. Well, that's the whole thing. I mean, I I despise George Carlin. I don't think George yeah. Carlin's funny at all. But one of the things I like about him, he's like, 
you know, this stuff where we talk about post-traumatic stress syndrome, and that was like a relatively, quote-unquote, new phenomenon at the time. Yeah. It was just something going on forever. Like, you know, yeah. back in the day, we called it like shell shock, and then it was battle fatigue, and then it was, he's like, we've just been coming up with fancier names for it. Well, I mean, <clears throat> as someone who worked in homelessness, there's, a, I was, I'm, tr- I'm trying to remember the name of the book, but someone wrote a book where um, there was extensive field study of people from World War One and World War Two who had spent a lot of time outside as part of the war. Okay. Especially World War One in the trenches, right? Yeah. And they got so acclimated to outdoor living that when they came home and had to be inside, it was traumatic. And in fact, there would be medical issues and psychological issues. And That's fucking terrible. So it was a study of that, of how hard it was for some of these people to like come back to normal life. And they compared all this old research to what they were finding among homeless folks. Yeah. Who they were trying to move inside. And it was all the same shit. That actually, if you've been on the street long enough, moving into a home for you is fucking hard. Like, this is part of the thing, like, side note, this is one of my little soapboxes I get on because I worked so long with folks who don't have homes and I feel like it's an issue that we still ignore and still treat like, well, they're just crazy or they're just addicts or blah, 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 blah. And one of the misconceptions is like, we'll just get them homes. And like, on one hand, that's right. Like there shouldn't be barriers to housing, but then we expect that once you give someone a place to live, like bada bing, bada boom, we're good to go. Yeah. And <clears throat> medical issues like oh, adrenaline keeps your body functioning in a certain way. Yes. When you remove adrenaline, then your body might crash. Uh, living on the streets is traumatic. In fact, the levels of <clears throat> adrenaline and other things that we associate with trauma is almost the same as people who've been in war because you are on the edge trying to survive so much when you live on the street. So then we put these folks in apartments and if we don't take care of them, then medical issues, psychological issues, things go fucking terribly wrong. Yes. Because they need attention after that. They can't just adjust back. And this is people who have been long-term on the streets you know there are a lot of people who cycle in and out of homelessness who also need our compassion help no disrespect or anything like that but who might not have the same long-term trauma yeah um but for folks who've been you know on the streets for a very long time there's a lot of stuff associated with that that is very similar to folks who were in wars and in trenches and stuff yeah no doubt um but yeah i mean i think i I think a lot of this movie with the, the way he's sort of no one really knows how to. I, I don't. I don't know if this is if this is like a technical, uh, like a technical oversight, like a not, not a plot hole because I'm not gonna say that. But no. like the way that people treat him coming back, it's so like it's so strange how like his family, their his close friends think he's dead, and then they're like, "Should we tell him that Andy's back?" Like, no, let's just wait. Like, let's surprise him. And it's just very weird how it's like, oh, you're gonna surprise this person when you show them someone that they think is dead. Yeah, there's well, it is it. Um, who finds out he's alive first? Is it who shows up at the house first? Well, no, I mean like yeah, like his parents obviously know. But I think then, the doctor or the mailman. I forget. Yeah, and that I mean that's that's another thing is is the mailman is like a like a World War Two vet and he's like talking to Andy, like he's so like blasé about it, like yeah yeah you know we got back like yeah this is it and you know even if you don't know that something is supernaturally wrong when you look at andy you would think like if i saw that guy on the street and i I was like oh he's a vet and i saw the way he was acting i'd be like oh he's 
he, he has PTSD. I'm not going to fucking ask him what, what it was like. And the guy's like asking these questions about what it was like over there. And I think that says something about how it's, I've had conversations with, with, with friends who have served who it's like, not every veteran who, 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 who serves, they don't always have the same experience. You know, I worked with a guy when I was in college in a deli who, uh, couldn't sleep at night because when he was in Vietnam, he had shot a child. I had a girlfriend in high school whose father was in Vietnam and he was a fucking desk clerk at a radar station. You know, technically he would be like, yeah, I was in Nam. It was like, yeah, but you were behind desk the whole time. Like you never picked up a gun once. So it's like, it, it, it was just, it's this, I, I think the, the way that these different experiences that veterans go through are, 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 are examined in, in the movie it's telling because I mean, even even if we if we take the fact that Andy is an undead thing out of it, the way the other veterans he knows in his life respond, the how he responds, it's kind of insensitive. Actually, not even kind of; it's yeah. very insensitive. Yeah. His his father is his father's complaining that he's you know again the second day he's back, his father's talking about how fucking soft he is and how he's a mama's boy and all this stuff, and then the mailman can't be bothered. And it's I, I just think that's like. Uh, especially since this movie came out in like 19, 1979, like not that long after 70, 74, 74, I'm sorry, 74, not that long after, um, hostilities ended in Vietnam, which is just weird. I mean, for, 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 for a Canadian horror movie to, to take this look so soon. Well, I think this is probably the first, maybe not the, but probably one of the first horror movies to deal with Vietnam. I would, I would argue that horror movies, were some of the first movies to deal with Vietnam in a lot of ways. Yeah. But I think this might be, I'm going to say, unless someone has a better example, like the first horror movie to take this on. And I think you could criticize the movie from a certain aesthetic point in that having the person who comes back from Vietnam literally be undead. Drinking other people's blood. Maybe that's a little distasteful for people. And I don't mean that in a patriotic sense at all. What I mean is that it's a very obvious metaphor. It's like <clears throat> America has this unjust, murderous war going on yeah. or just ending. And, you know, our, I don't want to say inheritance, but let's say our uh, karma comes back. Yes. And it is the murderous, undead ghoul of our sons. Yeah. You know, you could argue that's a little on the nose. Um, and in fact, parts of the, part of what I find so compelling about this movie is that parts of it are the most kind of cornball horror movie thing that you can have as far as the acting. The It, it comes across like um, almost like a 50s movie at times in like sort of the notes, uh, uh, the, the sort of notes are like, I don't know. It's not that harsh, but then it has certain moments that are clear like, oh, this is a 70s movie. It's an angry movie, and it's a movie that doesn't care about your sensibilities. One of the moments like that that it, I just was like, oh, we're in another place right now. Yeah, yeah. Is when he kills the dog. Yes. Now, side note, people hate it when dogs get killed. I get that. This one was bad, and if you if this bums you out, this is not going to be any less of a bum out. Yeah. I feel like. However, unlike in some other movies, I actually felt like it was not a waste of a... It wasn't just a mean scene, like, let's just kill some fucking dog. It's, it wasn't the cheat... It wasn't the sort of, like, 
punch in the dick kind of thing that right. people go for and where they're just like oh we need to evoke a cheap reaction out of the out of the just kill the dog yeah this is very much like a let's show how out of control he is he kills the dog in front of children too that's also he, important to know. he kills the dog in front of children and it is not it feels like not a conscious decision it doesn't feel like he's like you know what i should kill this dog right now are you saying are you commenting on the the idea of like um because what triggers this is one of these kids is like andy let me show you my karate moves and this kid does this like generic judo chop and andy fucking grabs the kid and then the dog starts barking and it like I mean, first of all, he's going to murder that kid. He's going to kill the kid. He's going to murder the kid, and all the dog does is sort of get in the way. Yeah. And so he murders the dog. And what I'm saying is, what I'm trying to express to the folks watching, or who might watch this movie if you haven't seen it, is that it's not a scene to show that Andy's an ass. Sometimes when a dog gets killed, it's for a cheap emotional action. Yeah. Sometimes it shows someone's cruel. Who would kill a dog? Only a monster. Yeah. Andy, we don't get, Andy isn't revolted necessarily by his actions. You know what I mean? Like, we don't have a moment where he's like, oh my God, did I kill a dog? Oh my gosh. Like, there's a little bit of that, but it's like more like you realize he is not, he's almost not um, a conscious being. I think uh, the way I, the what I took from that scene was that like, it sort of had this, I, I think that was critical of how, when American soldiers would come back from Vietnam, there was no kind of debriefing. They right. were programmed to kill. They were programmed to pick up the gun. Right. They were programmed to shoot. They were programmed right. to not think. And then all of a sudden, he's thrust back in suburbia. And that programming is still in his mind, which is unfortunately a thing that still exists today. I mean, it's it's arguably even worse today is because at least back in like World War II, when these kids would come home, they would have this like two to three week boat ride to come home. And they would they could talk to people they could talk to each other they could they could get it out of their systems and they still didn't receive the help that they needed when they got home but at least there was this tran- transitory moment where they could talk nowadays it's like an 8 hour plane ride and you're plane ride and you're just back in the US and you're expected to go back in your life and i think that scene where he kills the dog after almost killing a kid that's sort of like the that program that we put in him to go kill the enemy it's just it didn't just go away when he got home. Well, I think in the movie though it plays like because he's a ghoul. Th- but still the message is there. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And I think that's part of the in other words, the whole reason I brought it up was to say that the metaphor works because even though parts of the movie start off kind of in like a very light less dark horror way, almost like a pre-Romero thing. Yes. I almost feel like in response to the seriousness of the subject matter, the movie takes darker and darker turns that make it have higher stakes until we get to the climax, let's say the climax into the very end of the movie, in which it's just a whole, it's just so intense. Like it's, 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 oh, I mean, you know, this movie's from 1974. So I'll just go ahead and say. We're going to spoil the end. I just feel like we got to talk. We have to. We have to. So uh, if you've never seen it before, I guess skip ahead 15 minutes or some shit. But, um, you know, his need to kill to live is getting intent more and people know what's going on and whatever. And so then he attacks them at a he's at the is it at the drive in drive in theater? Yeah. Um, And that sort of is like there. 
there's no hiding. I mean, everyone, he's in public. People have seen him. He doesn't kill the the girl. She knows who he is. Yeah, you know yeah. I mean? So you know the jig is up. He gets home. the The mom is like, she's ready to protect him no matter what. Yeah. But dad's like, this is enough. I'm I'm gonna kill him. And he just he can't. He sees. He finally sees Andy for the monster he is. Yes. And he can't handle it. And he kills himself, which yeah. is like already dark. Happens off screen. Just heads up. But it's, it's, you know, the emotional power. It, again, you don't need to see someone's head explode to get the emotional impact. Not at all. Like, whoa. Then the mom takes him on the run. She's going to take him wherever he wants to go. And so he starts directing her where they're going to go. It it's also should be noted when he, when he's when he's at the drive-in, he attacks several people at the drive-in. Right. Because he is, when he doesn't get his intake of blood, he starts to decay. And right. if you do a Google image search for, for, for death dream, one of the first images is, is that's going to pop up is Andy when he's in like the, the grips of like his like blood fever where he just got, he has this like rictus grin and he's fucking, his eyes are like egg yolks just clouded over and it's really unsettling. Um, and it's funny because when he goes out on this date, he's wearing like gloves and he has these big, he looks like fucking Lou Reed, but cause he's falling apart, he's decaying and I guess his bloodlust becomes too much of the drive-in and he attacks, I forget if he attacks his date or his like best friend. He attacks the best friend because the best best friend dies. Best friend, yeah, yeah. And then like he drives the car away to go back home and he's just literally, literally falling apart. Physically, he is falling apart. He's rotting. And he gets home, his father takes his own life and his mother's like, get in the car. You know, we have to get out of here. Um, The police show up they unload on him. They shoot him several times. Doesn't stop him. And at this point, I think it, it it starts to get, it becomes tragic. Because the mother has seen undeniably what he is. Right. And she still is like driving blindly to wherever he wants to take her. And if, where does he take her, Liam? He takes her to the cemetery. To, he, that's what I was saying. I was going to say where they were going, but it's important to know he's directing her. And at first, she doesn't know where they're going. Yeah, they're going to the cemetery. She crashes in in a spectacular scene. Like the crash into the cemetery gates is no joke. No, they smash in the gates, and at this point, she's just desperately following him wherever he's going, and he is running feverishly and intensely to his own fucking grave that he has made. And he starts covering himself with dirt. That is one of the most haunting things I have ever seen committed to film. Because it's not like a six feet deep grave. It's a foot deep. And he's just laying in there, writhing around and pooling dirt over himself. Not even covering himself. And she's laying next to him, crying. And Andy, Andy. And then the cops are all standing around like, what the fuck is happening? And it's just so God, and his name is scrawled on the tombstone, Andy Brooks, with the the date of his death. And it's, it's like, I remember after it was over and I was just like, this is going to stick with me. This is going to stick with me for a while. And it, it, it has like that last, and you know, when I, when I, when I came over, um, today to record this, Liam was, was watching the end of it. And I was just like, oh fuck, now it's back in my head. You know, a lot of horror movies end with like a final scare. Or yeah, yeah. With like a corny moment or even like a laugh at the end. Yeah. Not a lot of horror movies end with something where I kind of get choked up. This honestly 
reminded me of the ending of An American War for London. That's just mm. Jenny a gutter yeah. looking at, at David Naughton dying and it's just cuts to black. Right. And it, it's just so like, that's it. The story's over. There's not a, there's the furthest possible thing from a happy ending. Everything is just fucked beyond repair. I mean, it, and it, for me, that ending then affects the whole rest of the movie. Yes. Because it, it, the anger of that, the unrelentingness of that, the bravery as a director or a screenwriter or both to yeah, like yeah. put that on film. It takes a movie which could maybe be a, a ham fisted metaphor. Yeah. And it makes it more it sort of says like to me at least, are do you feel like you're watching entertainment? Like is this like a like a fun thing for you? Yeah. Cause this is not fun. This is devoid of fun. Yeah. This ending. And leading up to this, there are some moments that could be like, you know, horror movie version of fun. Like that, you know, oh, what are we doing here? Whatever. But starting with the dead dog leading to this ending, this movie's like, this is not for fun. No, no. This is this is dark and it's serious, and you're gonna leave affected and maybe it won't affect you maybe you're someone who you know will find it corny for whatever reason but for me i was like oh god damn it like it, it got under my skin and it got under my skin in a different way you know a lot of horror movies will get under my skin if there's something that's like you know disturbing in like a terror inducing way and yeah, that, yeah this is disturbing but not like that it's no, not gross this is it's not it didn't make me afraid but it was upsetting. This is this this is the the definition. This is this is horror at its purest. This is not the terror that you feel when you're in a dark room and you know there's a corpse in the room that you can't see. This is the feeling when you can't see the corpse but you bump into it. That's how I felt after watching this movie is it it's such Andy goes from this sort of like I'm not going to say non-character but when you realize his intent that he yearns to go back to the grave after leaving this trail of fucking mayhem in, in, in his wake, just destroying everything. I mean, everything he touches is just ruined. I mean, his family's ruined. And then it just ends with, I, I cannot stress it enough with, with him because he's not like, he's like distant throughout the movie, but he's not like, bub zombie throughout the movie he's not no, like not you know what I mean? he's like you know andy do you need anything he's like no i'm okay thank you like he's he's distant but like by the, that by, by the by the time at the end he is what you think of when you think of a zombie he's a thing right. he's not a person he's been he's lost all humanity all he wants is just to lay down in the dirt and just fucking die and to 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 see this thing that yearns for death getting it or not getting it because he's still moving at the end is just it's I, I don't think I'm an intelligent I, I'm an intelligent enough person to really frame what I'm trying to say with words but well I think that um, what you're getting at um, is something that I think is too visceral to intellectualize in that way yes like, absolutely and I don't know again we are talking about the the, uh, the metaphor of this movie the underlying themes of the movie um, I don't want to mislead you that this is a super complicated complex or even like deep film no in in its overall but i think it could be a light film and considering the space in which it is working which is 
real tragedy, real awful things. If it were too light, too hammy, too exploitation-y, it'd be a fucking bummer. It'd yes. be like, oh, fuck you. Why did you even make this fucking movie? Especially in 1974 where people are still, you know, whatever. But the movie is injected to me with a kind of anger and seriousness and reality that's like, we're going to push this so that this isn't a gimmick. This is something that you're going to feel. And it doesn't all have to like be intellectualized. Like him covering himself in the dirt isn't like, well, what that, it's not a direct, sometimes when you talk about something having almost like a metaphorical context, people are looking for direct one-to-ones. Well, him being in the dirt is like the veterans act of, you know what I mean? Exactly. It's nothing like that. It's a, just a visceral angry. It is. Something's wrong. Fuck you. Like, you know what I mean? It it is an, the rest of this movie can be, you can, you can draw comparisons. You can draw metaphors. You can say, Oh, this represents this. This represents that. That represents that. The, The image of Andy struggling to bury himself in a shallow grave, there's no I don't know if there's any symbolism there but there doesn't need to be symbolism symbolism for it to be disturbing it is just it's so goddamn creepy and weird to look at that in a movie that relies somewhat on 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 metaphor to be unsettling the very end when you're looking at it you're like that's just a creepy image that's just a sad horrific image well and I think it's something that um leave it to Canada to make one of the few <laughs> anti-imperialistic Vietnam movies like a lot of Vietnam movies are just angry that it's you know what I mean like when you watch Vietnam movies uh, for me at least a lot of them are about the trauma for the veteran yes and this is that but there's also a sense in which uh, to connect to another movie from this year that we talked about a lot that there is a heritage okay that there's something we've sown seeds. Yes. I think that's in a sense what hereditary is pulling on is the fear that we have there's there's seeds that are coming to bloom and we don't know what the fuck they are. Yeah, no doubt. And and, and that's a fear that everyone has. This is one of the few movies that suggests death is coming home, y'all. Like no. death is coming back here. A lot of Vietnam movies only focus on the pain of being a survivor of this traumatic awful war or the pain of the way society responded to you. Very few of them focus on also we sowed a lot of bad things over there. No, it's like, it's like, you know, I, I think that one of the central themes in pet cemetery is when you plant something, right. you reap what you sow right. and whatever you reap, you own that. And what you own always comes home. Right. And that's an important theme is this, is that, you know, it, it's not just about, um, you know, Andy, whatever, representing this. It, it, it also, it, there's a very basic and primitive idea of whatever you do, whatever actions you take down the road, those are going to come home. Those those are going to come calling. And I think that, that this is what this is about is he went off to war for whatever reason and collectively that there were consequences for that um and again i I don't they don't really explore the relationship with his father too deeply beyond his father being a bit of an asshole but i'm curious uh i I, you know i'm curious what kind of household andy brooks was raised in i'm curious if was andy brooks drafted did he enlist voluntarily was he raised in this sort of like nationalistic patriotic household but yeah the, the 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 idea of you know, when you do something on such a scale that's so horrible, 
you don't know what the aftermath is going to be. You don't know what the effects are going to be. You don't know what the long-term effects are going to be. You don't know what's going to come home when something goes away. No. And I, I think this movie is is perfect at, 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 at crystallizing that idea. And this gets to something that I was trying to get at in my intro to Cineween and, and what I think we try to say about horror is that horror, um, it allows us to get at something that's important to us without having to just talk about it directly in an obvious way. Like, you know, a movie that was just a Vietnam drama would have to actually be literally about Vietnam and tell the story in a very literal, precise way, which might make it harder to get at some of the emotional notes yes. that this movie gets by having a fucking zombie crawl into the grave and try to try to <laughs> bury itself. There's something so visceral about that that it speaks to you in a way that the reality would it be obscured by how fucking real it was yes or unreal because you got it wrong that is part of what horror does is that in creating a fucking um uh grand guignol caricature of something we can actually see parts of it a little bit better or we can address it a little bit better than we could if it was like no it's actually a horse in a field (laughs) i drew a horse in a field then it's like okay i guess it's a horse in a field then but if it's like well, I was thinking about this thing, so then I told, I made this scary story to sort of represent how it made me feel. Something about that lets us get at it a little bit yes, more. Yes, absolutely. And so, again, I'm not saying this movie's better than Platoon. <laughs> That's not what I'm trying to say. No. But, but, but I think parts of it really appeal to me because it lets us get at something that is there, which in this case I think is like a f- deep fear and anger that in 1974 was probably really hard to fucking articulate that now maybe we're used to it because let's face it, almost the entirety of the eighties was people just fucking thinking about Vietnam. Yes. You know what I mean? So like at this point we might feel a little burned out, but the idea that this movie came out in 1974, even if it was a Canadian movie, I'm still blown the fuck away. How did this movie come out? Who saw it? And how mad were they after they saw it? Well, they're Canadian, so they were probably like, not not too mad. I'm sorry I saw that one. Yes. Tell you that. I got some harsh words for the director. Not too harsh, though. Not too harsh. We better get some Tim Hortons on the way home. (laughs) Oh, my God. Doug's going to be so mad. Yeah. He doesn't listen to the show. It's fine. Oh, my friend Kelly's Canadian, so she's... Oh, well, we like the Canadians. Send us a strongly worded email. Yeah, p- politely, though. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I think that's all we can. There's probably a little bit more to say in, about it, but I think we covered most of what we were feeling about it. I mean, I think, um, uh, you know, production wise, I will say if if you're into high production values, I mean, this is an indie film. Yes. You know, it's not it's not a fucking uh, gore fest. It's not no. the most amazing special effects. It's uh, Tom Savini's first movie, but you know, it, it, it's not like, whoa, wow. There's no maniac head exploding fucking no. machete to the head zombie. No, shit no, like no. that. Nothing like that. Um, but I, you know, I think we both felt like it was a movie. We were glad we saw a lot. Unlike the next movie we're going to talk about, <laughs> which is not as bad as the internet will lead you to believe. But it is almost as bad as the internet will yes. lead you to believe. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back. We're going to talk about 1983s. This movie came out just a month before I was born. So I've lived my entire fucking life in the shadow of this movie. 1983s curtains. We'll be right back. Behind every curtain, someone is waiting. <laughs> 
someone is watching. Someone is hiding. What waits behind the curtains is exciting, frightening, sensual, terrifying, and bizarre. Curtains reveal what you expect and what you don't. Ultimate Nightmare. And we are back to talk about 1983's Curtains. Curtains. Released on March 4th, 1983, written by Robert Guza Jr., who wrote Prom Night and a whole bunch of TV shows. Directed by Richard Kiepka, who kind of did his own Alan Smithy thing for this and took his name off the credits. Um, he was credited as Jonathan Stryker who's also a character in the movie, starring John Vernon, who was in Animal House and Killer Clowns from Outer Space, and Samantha Egger, who was in The Brood, Michael Wincott, who was in The Crow, and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and Lynn Griffin, who was in Black Christmas. And other people. And other people. Uh, so the plot of this movie is, hmm, uh, opens up where we meet Samantha Sherwood, who is an actress. She works with the director Jonathan Stryker, played by John Vernon. And he, in a bit of misdirected method acting, has her committed uh, into an insane asylum so she can prepare for the role of this character, Aldra. Um, And if I remember this correctly, she gets committed. She's realized, like, oh, he's just going to fucking leave me here. The movie suggests, though they never follow up on this idea. Yeah. That being. Which is a common theme in this movie. Being committed slowly drives her insane or at least hopeless. Um, And so if you go off the cues the movie is giving you, it's not clear that he's done such an awful thing by the time he's done the awful thing. Yeah. Because the movie keeps showing you that she is less and less connected to reality. So then one day he goes in, he's like, well, I guess fuck this. Like, she won't even talk to me. I don't even. She won't talk to me. Fuck her. Well, I just in the sense of like, Maybe she needs to be here, whatever, whatever. Um, and then the moment she reads in Variety that this part that she's in there for is not her part, suddenly she's lucid again and she breaks out of the fucking thing. And, and what the fuck is going Because, again, there's a way to do if what we're going to say is he left her there because he's this horrible monster human, then show me that she is like cool yeah, yeah but the yeah, movie yeah. just keeps showing you that she is losing it and then i guess that's the setup well i don't want to get there yet but let's just say the whole first 15 minutes of this fucking movie is to set up a shitty red herring that you know is not the real thing for the whole fucking movie which is yes so it, it then cuts to um we found out that Jonathan Stryker is having at this house in the wilderness, he's having these five actresses over to audition for the role of Aldra, who Samantha is supposed to be auditioning for. Things start to happen, um, and then gradually these women are all killed off one by one by this person wearing this fucking terrifying mask of an elderly woman. Um, 
and then it turns out in the end it's an actress that we don't care about. Um, <laughs> that was very. I like that your ruining of the anticlimactic ending was itself anticlimactic. It's so stupid. Okay, so let's let's talk about what, what what's wrong with this movie. Okay, first of all, the movie is disjointed in a way that that word makes sense. Like people say disjointed all the time. And what oftentimes what they mean is just that they don't feel like there's a flow to the movie or that some set pieces work and other ones don't, or that the movie moves at a pace where things happen and it's not clear why they happen. This movie is disjointed in that it feels like three different movies are occurring at the same time in front of you and they are not connected in any way until the end of the movie. Apparently the director envisioned something of like, and I think this is clear. I have a feeling the director wanted to make like a giallo type film. Yes. And the producer wanted to make more of like a Halloween slasher type film. Sure. Um, so these two visions of, of, of what these people want this movie to be are constantly just struggling to, 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 for, for dominance. But, but which one of them wanted to make a made-for-TV drama about a guy and his girl not getting along and about how he's a jerky director? And which of them wanted to make an after-school special about a teenage ice skater getting fucked by an old man? Because these are also aspects of the movie. Like, Also... Michael Wincott is disgusting in this movie. Yeah, no. Uh, he's so fucking gross. He's so gross. Okay, um, so there are so many aspects to this movie that don't work. Like, A, the entire introduction where she fakes being crazy to then go into the asylum. A, there's a shot that suggests that the doctor knows that she's not crazy. Yeah. Because they're having a conversation, and it looks like he's eavesdropping on them. And yet, she stays in the asylum. Yes. That's weird. Uh all the parts where she's getting fucked up by the crazy people, basically like that they're doing weird things and that's messing with her sanity. And yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just weird. I would suggest that most of those things, if you've ridden the subway in a major Northeastern city, someone has done the things to you. That's that happened to this woman. The scene where the woman comes out of the bathroom or whatever, and she's like laughing and tickling her. I was close to walking out of your basement. That that was just like, I I would suggest that that's happened to me at least twice. Just a random person trying to tickle me. I would fucking kill someone if they tried that shit on me. I mean, okay, I'm clearly exaggerating, but they don't equal what that sequence is trying to do, which is in. And I said 15 minutes before because I was exaggerating. They literally want you to believe that she's lost her marbles in like not enough time to give you enough scenes to believe that that's real. Yes. It's just, they just keep trying to push it to get to this point where he just decides like, well, whatever. Clearly she's actually insane. So I should just leave her here. So, okay. So then what happens? He's going to bring these actresses, right? But then we get a scene where she's burning the pictures. That's sort of how we're going to get to know the actress. You see the picture go on the fire. Yes. And then we see the actress in like sort of their environment, right? Yeah. 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 Who is she talking to on the bed? I don't know. Exactly. There's <laughs> someone on the bed who broke her the fuck out of the uh, mental hospital, and they're shot in such... Uh, Maybe the comedian girl? Oh, then why is she so surprised that the comedian girl is crazy? Okay, so it feels like originally in the script, her and the comedian girl were working together, and then what she finds out later on is the comedian girl is crazier than she thought. Yes. And that's why the comedian girl is murdering everyone. 
what actually happens in the movie is that it climaxes in a scene where she had no idea they have no relationship. Yes. And the comedian girl just murders her. And it's just like, okay, let's go back to this loose end. What the fuck was going on in that scene? Why is she doing... So, to me, that scene is what I'm trying to describe to you with the... I said TV movie, but it's actually more like soap opera drama. Yes. There are multiple scenes that feel like a soap opera drama that don't mesh with, let's say, for example, the ice skater. So, one of the characters is a very young ice skater. No explanation of why she's going for Auditioning for a role. And in fact the director is possibly the worst written character because he's just crazy and mysterious and nothing he does ever makes sense. And one of the things is like, why has he put together this group of crazy ladies who just like, none of them actually fit each other. So why would they all be in the running for this role? Yeah. One of them is this young girl ice skater who based upon the information the movie's given me, they don't say this directly, but just going off of what I see in the movie, she's, I guess they're just to get fucked because he fucks her. Yes. In a scene that has no other, it has literally no relevance for the plot other than maybe to give you the idea that the director might be the killer because he seems like a bad guy. Yes. So he might be the killer. So after that horrible scene where you know that he has had sex with this underage girl, the next morning she goes ice skating and then she becomes a victim of whoever the killer is. In what is, I believe, the soul redeeming uh, aspect of this movie is the scene when you yeah. see the killer skating towards her wearing this this hag mask uh, in a movie that is just confusing at times. Most of the and time it's boring and very and boring. boring. It's a very striking image. There, I, I would argue that some of the other kills are also okay, but that is the only one. The dancer getting killed was pretty cool too. But the only one that's really effective, like really effective, is that ice skating scene. Yes. It's just so weird to see it. But you take that scene... And then the scene before it where the we see the director leaving her bedroom observed by someone else, they serve no purpose. I mean, I guess you could say, well, the older actress who was uh, institutionalized, yeah, she sees him coming out of there. So maybe we're supposed to think that she's killing her because That's she's a, jealous. It's this bullshit giallo red herring attempt that they try to do and they fail miserably. Every red herring in this movie, you know. I mean, literally, even though this actress, we've been shown that she's not stable, per se, and that she shows up very angry and very jealous, at no moment do you, do I, at least, believe she's the killer. Yeah. In fact, the part where she says, well, actually, the two people who got shot, I did shoot them. I shot them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that happens is you go, well, that wasn't believable. Like, the, <laughs> the idea that the crazy that the comedian girl is actually insane and just has been murdering people because she just wants to be an actress. It comes out of nowhere. It has no evidence to support it. It's completely unearned. And yet it's more believable than when she's like, I shot them. Call the police. I don't care. You're like, why? Why did she shoot them? (laughs) You you just really wanted to have two killers. It's, it's literally like, um, someone's been fucking with you with like a riddle. And then when they reveal the riddle, it's some stupid thing that you could ever, never have really gotten because there wasn't enough It's like a joke my niece would tell me. Like, that right. punchline doesn't make any sense. Right. This is this whole movie. Yeah. It's a punchline that doesn't make any sense. And they all they all hinge the comedian as being the killer. They all hinge it upon this, like, when we first meet her, she tells some joke that, like, vaguely, if you reach across the room, if you stretch that far enough, it 
could be an allegory for killing someone, maybe. Let, let's talk, too, about, really briefly, about the fucking wasted talent in this movie. In the sense of, like, I think all of these women are are pretty solid actresses. Yeah. I would maybe argue the dancer doesn't talk that much, so it's hard to know how great she is. No, but even, even the talent we have, like... Um, John Vernon is great at being an asshole. Samantha Egger, she's also great. I mean, even Michael Wincott, he, he he's top dollar in The Crow. Yeah. You know, he, I mean, he has zero lines in this movie. All he does is like walk in and be like, <laughs> he, he makes out with a girl in a hot tub. <laughs> he grabs a boob. It's just, it, it's like it, one of the few scenes where he, you're like, he's doing anything. He grabs a boob. Yeah. And then he mysteriously sees the, ice skater girl walking off to find the pond yeah why is that shot is that we're supposed to think he's a red herring too now like and then he rides off in a snowmobile it's so fucking stupid this whole movie's stupid here's the thing i i will say that the couple parts that are enjoyable are enjoyable i'm not just being nice like there are a couple parts here that i thought okay this might not be so bad but the bad parts are exceedingly bad. This, They're not just bad, stupid. They're exceedingly stupid and unnecessary. And the vibe of the movie never works because none of it is meant to be together. None of it hangs together well. None of it moves the plot forward in a real way. And it just feels like no one making this movie knew what kind of movie they were making. Yeah, it feels almost like by the time you get to the ending, it's almost like an accident that they even made it this far. I mean... Part. Let's be clear. Just to give you guys a little insight, they started making this movie in the end of 1979. Is when they were like, "We're gonna yeah. make this movie." They started shooting in 1980. This movie comes out in 1983, and that's not just like it. Got, it got finished and shelved. There were reshoots for like three years. Uh, the director abandoned the movie. I brought it up on Wikipedia. Um, the director abandoned the movie after only 45 minutes of the film had been shot. So then. Uh, someone else had the takeover, who I believe was the producer. Um, and then he had made an entirely different movie. That's why this movie, it, when you watch this movie, it's directed by Jonathan Stryker, which is the name of John Vernon's character. That wasn't some little bit of like meta nonsense. That was like, that was the director being like, do not put my fucking name on this movie. I don't care who you say directed this. Just don't put my name on it because it's not my movie. I just realized, too, we didn't talk about the doll. Every time someone gets murdered, <laughs> there's a fucking frowning face giant doll. I mean, say giant. Just It's a taller than normal doll. It's like a the sort of weird, creepy doll that you assume only exists for horror movies anyway. Yeah. And it's frowning. It looks like it's crying. And someone always sees the doll and then they get murdered. The woman has a dream about it. Like, yeah. they try to make it, they, like, they, they try to, and then it's just abandoned. Like, halfway, th- maybe a quarter to halfway through the movie, like, in the, being, in the beginning of this movie, they're, they're making this big deal how the doll is always there. Someone's having, she has a nightmare about the doll. The girl who gets killed by the ice skater, or the girl who gets killed while she's ice skating, the doll is in the snow, so you're like. She's holding the fucking doll. The doll is on the cover of the movie. And then it just, it goes away. They just, they, they literally never, like. And then why, the house where they're staying. Why is there all that creepy shit in the basement? I think that was like the producer's, the director's house, wasn't it? Yeah. Why does he have so much weird shit in the basement? I don't know. I have weird shit in my basement. I guess. It was weird. It, I just felt like, again, no, 
there's so many different parts of this movie that don't fit together. And some of it, there is behind the scenes stuff. Like originally, um, our man is supposed to get shot while he's on a snowmobile and he crashes into the house. Right. And they just did away with that. Yeah. Instead, he's upstairs with another woman. I guess it's the um, older actress who yes. he had had sex with. Also, the scene where the actress walks in and sees them in bed together is the grossest thing. Because he just stares like... He's like smoking a cigarette like in I the dark. Fu- I just fucked this woman. That's what it looks this like. Is, so you're looking at me post So he gets shot. They go flying out the window. Which, by the way, why would they go flying out the window? Yeah. They go flying out the window. And then somehow he arcs around and crashes in the lower window. Which I guess he gets caught on the curtain and that creates a... No, there's no physics reason for him to crash in the lower window. Yeah. But it's in slow motion, so I guess that's cool. It literally is just like they shot it for some other scene and then they just couldn't do the scene. Yeah, exactly. It's crazy. Michael Wincott's character was actually supposed to die. They were supposed to show him die on the snowmobile, but instead they were just like, um, we don't know how to like work that into the scene. So I believe in the end that's him laying in the hot tub dead. Yes. So they're just, he's just there dead. Just a shot of him dead. And the hot tub's like boiling. There's like mist and fog coming off of it. Well, it's cold out. I, this is like dry ice fog. It's a lot. It's a, it's excessive. It's like a witch's cauldron. Also, there's no, usually when you have that scene in a movie, it's because someone walks up. Like, think about like Halloween, right? Like, yeah, yeah. They discover the, you know, she discovers the bodies. Yeah, yeah. No one discovers him. It's just a shot. So you just, you know, he's dead. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there he is. He's dead. We show the audience he's dead, but no one found him that way. <laughs> it's just not a good movie, and it, it just—it's so bad, guys. Yeah. So, so here's the thing, though: the poster is crazy. The poster is very unsettling. Too many people pointed out on my Instagram it looked like a vagina. Uh, two different people, two different people, unrelated to each other, pointed out to me that's a weird-looking clitoris. Yeah. Because it's like, okay, the cover is like the dolls coming out of the curtains. And at the top of the curtains, there's a face. And so if you were thinking of it as vaginal, then where the face is is where the clitoris would be. Yeah. But instead of just saying, wow, that's a very vaginal picture. Yeah. People were like, well, what's up with that clit? What <laughs> Yo. Mean, what's up with it? It's not actually a vagina. No one put out a movie poster if it was actually a vagina. Yeah. I know you're fucking with me, but the point is, is that I actually have always thought that the poster was kind of cool and it made me want to see this movie and this yeah. movie is not cool and it is nothing like the poster yeah and fuck that poster i agree fuck this whole movie so that was curtains <sighs> i i feel like we're giving you a shorter episode because there's not that much to say about curtains but the reality is there's really not that much to say about, curtains. Not much about- we wanted to do here's here's i will say this okay in a lot of ways the phenomena of people making all these movies in canada is a great thing because yes. some things got made that otherwise would not have got made and some of them are like real treasures. Yeah. Think of everything David Cronenberg has looked at. Yeah. But then you get fucking curtains. And <laughs> and and unlike Science Crazed, like we covered Science Crazed on Cinepunks. Yeah. Science Crazed is a movie, I don't even know if he got money to make that movie because it looks like that movie was made on a VHS tape for $20 or something. Okay. But it's like such an oddity that like that's interesting that yeah. it's an oddity. Curtains is not that. No. If you if you they covered it on one of these like bad movie podcasts, I don't know what they would say that would be worth saying. It's, it's not even an interesting movie. No, it, the most interesting part of the movie is what we were covering, which is that it doesn't fit, it doesn't make any sense, 
and they put this out in the world like here's the story we want to tell and it's like no you don't what there's is no this? story yeah it's nothing it's it's rambling it's just shouting into the void but you know it's not shouting in the wo- into the void what's that this fucking podcast yeah i agree because people listen people, and we love you we do love you so that was Curtains and Death Dream. As always, thank you for listening. If you are interested, you can go to www.cinepunks.com to hear more of our episodes. And there's also several other great podcasts you can check out in there, including our flagship co- podcast. I almost said Codpast. Our flagship podcast. I love that flagship Codpast. Codpast. Uh, Cinepunks, Wine and Cheese, Black Sun Dispatches, The Mandate, Got Me a Movie. And I th- think that's all I'm going to get shit on for forgetting something. No, that's fine. That's fine, yeah. Um, There's also information on there how, again, if you want, you can donate to our Patreon. Uh, You can follow us on social media at theharbiz666 on both Twitter and Instagram. If you want to email us with any comments, suggestions, threats, um, phone numbers, ladies, it would be theharbiz at gmail.com. You should check us out on iTunes. And if you do check us out on iTunes, be sure to leave us a five-star review uh, or any review. But if you read us, if you leave us a five star review, guess what? I'm gonna rip off our boys and girl at the Horrified Podcast. If you leave us a five star review, we'll fucking read it on the air. And if you do listen to us on iTunes, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and download, download, download. Uh, Liam and I are going to be at the Brooklyn Horror Film Festival on next Saturday. So if you see us there, come say what's up, um, or don't. Will we have pins and stickers? Absolutely. You should definitely go say what's up because we'll give you a pin yeah. and or sticker. We will. Uh, and a high five. We'll and a high, a high five. five. Yeah, you know, it'll be, we'll get our picture taken because we like, we like seeing people out, out, out in the wilderness. Uh, so yeah, other than that, thank you for listening. We greatly appreciate it. And um, oh, also <sighs> October 19th. Is that when it is? Oh, right. Let's hang out again. again. Yes, Chris Reject who I hate and Liam hates, everybody hates, is doing Let's Hang Out Again. If you like wrestling, wrestling, if you like music, you like the punk music, come hang out, say what's up. Here's the thing. I'm not a big wrestling person. No, you're not. But the last time I went, I had fun. You had fun. The wrestlers were fun. Wrestling is fun. And then this time, the Here's Collective is playing. Yes. And I'm a big fan. That record rips. That record slaps, fucks, bops, and fucking snaps. And I'm going to mosh when I see him. I might mosh. I'm going to pit. I might pit a little bit. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, uh, you can check out the LVAC on Twitter for more information on that. It'll be a good time. Come say what's up. Uh, yeah. It's Halloween. Stay spooky. Listen to Merciful Fate and worship the devil. Paint your face and smash a pumpkin. Damn the man. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Bye. Fuck Victor Salva. Fuck Victor Salva. Don't talk. Just listen. Son, there is no hope, only mystery, wonder, and danger. Black Sun Dispatches on the Cinefunks Podcast Network.